Welcome to the 20th episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. This month, as a matter of fact, I'm going to begin with two plays, one in San Francisco and one in Chicago. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, a musical, or a theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, I am going to share with you my theater visits from the month of June 2019. There'll be one from Broadway, the play Inc., which tells Rupert Murdoch's story when he acquired the tabloid The Sun, and a bunch of off and off-off Broadway shows, including the new musical by Duncan Sheik and Lynn Nottage, based on the best-selling book The Secret Life of Bees. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviews.com. From myseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started on this month's group. I'm going to start with an off-off Broadway entry that technically was seen in the latter days of May prior to going out of town. The name of the show, Madame Lynch. In the 19th century, Eliza Lynch made her notoriety when she traveled from her native Ireland and became the mistress wife of the president of Paraguay's son. She bore him six children and was considered an ambitious courtesan. Some believe she turned him into a bloodthirsty dictator. Others debunk this story as war propaganda. The theater company The Drunkard's Wife has turned her story into a spectacle with music. This show is defined by the company as a fragmented portrait. Scenes, both real and imagined, are intended to showcase her life as an adventurous, cultural doyen, femme fatale, and microfinance pioneer. When the show begins, her face is a bit dirty and she reminds me of Marie Antoinette. She's planning a party. Why is she dirty? Apparently, she is digging a grave with her hands. I didn't understand that until I read the script afterwards. She, and the playwrights, like lists. She recites how her guest should come and what they should wear. You will come as the fishwife of Ghent. Or a raspberry. Or three embarrassed laundresses. Pointing toward an audience member, Madame Lynch declares, You will wear a prostitute's yellow hood. From this point, little can be understood. There are scenes in a forest where someone named the Mighty Gatherer says, Those rattling neotropic insects you hear are heliotropic. They go to sunlight. What does this have to do with the story? More psychobabble, and then the scene ends with, Quote, does your Madame Lynch even imagine this? Madame Lynch was clearly not my cup of tea. Normandy Sherwood and Craig Flanagan wrote and directed this play. I mentioned earlier that they apparently like lists. Scene 17 is titled 695 Known Birds of Paraguay. This is presented as a choral for Madame Lynch and two other women. I started to worry that they were going to name all of them. All 695. I'm not kidding. They listed at least 200 very specific birds. Here's an example. The drab-breasted pygmy tyrant. While the resuscitation was creatively intertwined and impressively memorized, the point escaped me entirely. Happily, 
Julia Francis Kelly was an inspiring choice to play Madame Lynch. Her performance was a nice blend of understated camp, wide-eyed opportunist, and haughty first lady. The costumes by Miss Sherwood were eye-catching, vividly colored, and quite memorable. Seven members of Ballet Penambi Vera, a contemporary Paraguayan dance company, livened up the proceedings with Ileana Gauto's exuberant and welcome choreography. Towards the end of this hodgepodge of a rambling play, undercooked spectacle, dull cartoon, and incoherent history lesson stuffed with pretentious dialogue, there is a fashion show. The War of the Triple Alliance is depicted. In a show which excelled in presenting memorable costumes, why was the fashion show so mundane? Points about warfare and casualties were uttered, but none of them mattered before moving on to the next vignette. Madame Lynch wanted to be a clever production showcasing the horrors of misguided cultural imperialism. Perhaps the finished product is just too specifically quirky to be enjoyed from outside the creative team's vision. I cannot think of anyone I would send to see this particular show. Now let's take a trip to the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco and their production of Rhinoceros. Eugène Ionesco's 1959 play Rhinoceros is an absurdist triumph considered to be social commentary on the growth of fascism and Nazism prior to World War II. There are many themes which underscore that premise, including conformity, mob mentality, and morality. From his mother's side, Ionesco was ethnically Jewish during the rising anti-Semitic atmosphere. The radical right was pushing for the removal of these illegal aliens from their country. By the time he got to the University of Budapest, one of his philosophy professors was using his lectures to recruit students into the Iron Guard. This fascist legion was violently anti-Semitic. In a 1970 interview, the playwright noted that during this time, one person after the next was becoming an iron guard. Trapped in the mechanism, they fell into line, accepted the doctrine, and became a rhinoceros. The play begins in a small French village, where intellectual Jean is waiting for the kind-hearted drunkard Beringer. In this version, the character spellings are in English. An important discussion was planned, but Jean decided to berate his friend for his tardiness and general drunkenness. This continues until a rhinoceros is spotted rampaging through the square. Another rhinoceros appears and crushes a woman's cat. We are told the cat's name was Marmalade. Beringer heads to the newspaper office where he works and is, of course, late. The staff are arguing about whether or not a rhinoceros could appear in France despite all of the eyewitness accounts. Botard argues that the locals are too intelligent to be tricked into the empty rhetoric of a mass movement. From there, you can guess what happens. This production at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco is a mixed bag of absurdity. Although written in three acts, this version is performed in two. The second half dragged on. The last, long scene between Beringer and Daisy, the woman he loves, was a dud. There didn't seem to be any bond between the two, and as a result, no sparks were generated, which is definitely needed with this material two performances did stand out for me in terms of their inspired characterizations. Ms. Buff's husband works with Beringer, but her husband is turned with the tide. She literally falls for him despite the fact that he is now a rhinoceros. Trish Mulholland was hilarious in the role. As the boss Mr. Papillon, Daniel Shai was probably my favorite absurdist on the stage. David Breitbarth, 
and Matt DeCaro were entertaining as Berenger and Jean, but there were more laughs to be had, most notably in Jean's bedroom scene. Directed by Frank Galati, the pacing seemed to slow down, and as a result, so did the play's effectiveness. I thoroughly enjoyed Robert Perziola's scenic design, which suggested very, very good fun. This is a perfect time to stage this Ionesco masterpiece. Imagine how many times in history we've seen people blindly follow rhetoric with a mob mentality. Hard not to feel sympathy for Berenger and see that right now. For Rhinoceros to shine brightly, that sort of disturbing fun and absurdity needs to be sustained more consistently than was in this production. Now let's travel from San Francisco to Chicago, visiting the Steppenwolf Theater Company and their production, Ms. Black for President. If you, like me, are a political junkie and a fan of drag queen entertainers, Ms. Black for President is a surefire great evening in the theater. Oscar winner Tarrell Alvin McCraney, he's the author of the Moonlight screenplay and also Broadway's Choir Boy, which ran this year. Mr. McCraney plays Joan Jett Black, who ran for president in 1992 on the Queer Nation party ticket. Along with director Tina Landau, Mr. McCraney wrote this highly entertaining celebrity celebration. Before the show in the lobby, for those who were paying attention, Molly Brennan stands next to a disco ball and performs a five-minute version of The Wizard of Oz. The entire film is covered in snippets, sounds, and happy frivolity. You could not enter the theater without a smile plastered on your face. Meanwhile, there are monitors showing what's happening inside. Drag queens are parading on a runway. That all sounds fun and gay. A timeline, however, is also present in the lobby. In January of 1992, Miss Black announced her candidacy, hoping to make it to the floor of the Democratic National Convention in July. AIDS is now the number one cause of death for U.S. men ages 25 to 44. By the end of the year 1992, 194,476 deaths will be reported to date from this disease. ACT UP and Queer Nation were two groups making increasingly visible noise to pressure Washington to both acknowledge the crisis and actually do something. The beginning of this show is informative. For too many years, queer was a derogatory term. They want to take their name back. They demand the death of homophobia instead of our lovers and friends. The setting is Convention Hall meets Protest Room, with a runway cutting through the audience. This is certainly a drag show with lip-syncing and heels. On a deeper level, though, the extravaganza is also a history lesson and a reminder. Quote, It's very important that people are not forgotten. Of course Ms. Black is funny and gets a few light-hearted political barbs to throw out, such as, My platforms are high and higher. The campaign slogan was undeniably fabulous. Lick Bush in 92. Throughout the Good Time drag show, tension lurks close to the surface. Queer Nation is making noise to grab attention not to win an election. Is Miss Black caught up in the celebrity of the moment? Naturally, all of the targets you would expect, Republicans, Reagan, well, they're hit hard. Refreshingly, they even go after mainstream liberal leaders. Democrats in drag are, quote, people who dress up and pretend they think about the poor. Themes are loud and very clear. Quote, whom we elect at the top decides who gets fucked at the bottom. By this point, you already know whether or not this show is for you. 
David Zinn's scenic design manages to capture the spirit of a glamorous drag show, which is not afraid to be aggressively serious about the angst and anger of the time. The entire performance is wildly enjoyable, but also highly illuminating. The show exists to honor those who've come before and remind us all about the importance of standing up for civil rights and basic human decency. All of the actors excel and play multiple roles. Sawyer Smith plays Q, which seems to nicely describe the various parts expertly inhabited, including Marilyn Monroe. Patrick Andrews channeled Mark from Queer Nation, who pushed the agenda and was clear-sighted about the mission. John Hudson Autumn played journalist and drag persona Glenda Orgasm, a performance artist who wants to capture the big interview on the convention floor. Martha P. Johnson, one of the leading activists in the Stonewall Riots, is remembered in Miss Black for President. This performer was found dead floating in the Hudson River later that same year. Apparently, law enforcement was uninterested in investigating this potential homicide. This month is the 50th anniversary of this historic and dramatic exercise in free speech for equal rights. That's the Stonewall Riots. Johnson paved the way for many drag queens to follow. The tribute here is timely, fitting, and touching, as is the reminder of the hard work done by unforgettably courageous citizens. Coincidentally, the next play I'm going to review is at Axis Company, which performs in Greenwich Village, just a stone's throw from the Stonewall Bar where the Stonewall Riots took place. The play, Last Man Club. There are no sure bets in theater. That's the excitement and reality of live performance and creative risk-taking. There are, however, reliable pockets of extraordinary levels of sustained excellence. One can presume a visit to the small Greenwich Village basement space of the Axis Company will include mind-blowing ambiance. Last Man Club beautifully overloads the senses and transports you to the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. For its 20th anniversary season, Axis Company's artistic director Randy Sharp has reprised her 2013 play. Farmers in the prairies of Texas and Oklahoma destroyed the topsoil which contained native grasses. Without those deep-rooted plants to protect the land through periods of drought and high winds, dust storms raged on for the better part of the decade. Many escaped to find a better way of life. John Steinbeck immortalized that migration in his magnificent book, The Grapes of Wrath. Ms. Sharp has taken a different route, telling a story of a family that decided to stick it out. When the lights go down at the start of this play, the wind is deafening. The composer and sound designer of many Axis productions, Paul Carbonara, creates a harsh environment through sound. You sit there for a while to take it all in. When the lights come up, the dust is so prevalent that you can practically smell it and taste it. Four people remain in this house. There are no neighbors anymore. No one goes outside without a face covering. Major, who is played by a superb John McCormick, while Major is the man of this home, determined to see the light when it arrives at the other end of this storm. His brother decided to leave for better pastures in California, taking all the money with him. Saromi and Wishful High are the ladies in residence. Both dream about the picture shows. Pogard is healing from a broken arm. Everyone is damaged in some way, beaten down by their never-ending environmental misery. There is activity outside the home. Occasionally a vehicle passes by. There will be two different visitors that drop in to check on the family. One takes his hat off to let the dust fall, underscoring the intense conditions. The mysterious plot revolves around these strangers and survival decisions. 
Claustrophobic emotional drama is the mood. Tension is the catalyst which drives this tale forward. Last Man Club is not a play which tells a straightforward story. What happens and does not happen is for the audience to decide. This experience is best described as immersive environmental theater. With all of the current conversations about climate change, the timing is certainly right to consider the implications of a man-made disaster. When you leave the theater, you will have resided in that sad home and felt choked by the dust and despair. The atmosphere is suffocating and riveting. The six actors combine a naturalistic style with their unique characters' individualized quirkiness. Relationship histories are hinted at. The audience is given the opportunity to color between the lines. This is a theater piece to experience, not simply to follow a story arc. There is darkness looming everywhere. Can the human spirit conjure up hope in a horrific world of doom and gloom? The next show is a dance festival entitled Women Create. Seven women choreographers and their companies share resources and collaborate for this one-week festival of dance. Each performance of Women Create contains four selections. In addition to experiencing the enjoyment of varied works and styles, the choreographers spoke to the audience after the first piece ended. Jennifer Muller set the tone for the evening with, She said, I truly believe that movement is a language which can speak and heal the world. Jacqueline Bulizi of the Bulizi Dance Theater choreographed Most Anthology Variation Number no. 5. Part of its two-year Moss project, the dance is inspired by the writings of State University of New York professor Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, a Potawatomi biologist and poet. The imagery projected began with the roots of trees, which are like sentient beings, as Miss Bulgazi later commented. Rocks and cracks in the earth appear on screen and her dancers start bonding together, their movement incorporating interwoven hands and arms. The land turns to fire. The dance takes us through Earth's cycle of renewal. The mushroom image and the final movements encapsulate the spiritual rebirth of the forest floor. A world premiere, The Theory of Color, was choreographed by Jennifer Mueller from the company Jennifer Mueller The Works. A visual and auditory treat, lighting bathes the stage in a particular color. Text is spoken to contextualize the power and attributes of red, blue, dark purple, green, and yellow. The dance and words act in combination to bring color to life. Red is for rage, red is for roses. Is it cool passion or the violence of love? The poetry here is truly gorgeous, layering a mental image and a definite mood onto the dancer's movements. The sea is so vast, the sky so wide, as wide and as vast as the whirlpool in your blue eyes. The yellow section was particularly memorable, ending breathlessly with, Finally, I hear the faint sounds of spring. Finally, I hear the welcome songs of canaries and bees. The third segment was entitled, You Took a Part of Me, and was choreographed by Carol Armitage of Armitage Gone Dance. This dance was excerpted from a longer piece which will premiere this fall. Inspired by the 15th century no-play Nonomiya, this story involves erotic entanglements and psychosexual tensions in the style of traditional Japanese ghost-no theater. In the splendidly sensuous section, Memory Duet, Megumi Ida and Christian Laverde Koenig show the power of dance when elegant and precise movements are presented in unison with equally mesmerizing character development and strong wordless acting. A full production in October 
will include a traditional wooden no stage on loan from the Japan Society. I will be there. Fun and frivolity concluded the evening's program. Snap, Crackle, Pop was choreographed by Carolyn Dorfman and Renee Jaworski. Miss Jaworski is Palobolus's co-artistic director. This work is a unique collaboration which will tour for two years as part of Carolyn Dorfman Dance before joining the repertoire of Palobolus. The dance exuberantly celebrated and mocked television commercials from long ago. The romanticism sold by cigarette companies was a hilarious tangle of pleasurable addiction. John F. Kennedy, described as a man who's old enough to know but young enough to do, is assassinated, effectively shutting down the misguided joyful era. The imagery in our heads from all of the information that pours inside our brains seemed to be represented by the dancers as neurons. This particular work was a crowd-pleasing dance filled with some vividly powerful structural movements. Women Create is both mentally interesting and visually stimulating. The evening is a wonderfully relaxed and exciting way to see different artists sharing their style of dance. Pay heed to the instructions spoken during the theory of color. Quote, green for go in traffic lights the world over. The next off-off-Broadway play I want to tell you about is entitled Convention. Ever wanted to sit on the floor during a presidential nominating national convention? The opportunity is available in Brooklyn at the Irondale Center. Danny Rocco's play immerses its audience onto the floor of the 1944 Democratic Convention. Roosevelt had already served four terms and was not expected to live through his next one. A battle for the vice presidency, and for the likely next president, occurred. That juicy political story is retold here with a huge cast of 40 actors. The candidates for vice president included the incumbent Henry A. Wallace and Harry S. Truman. Although Wallace was the president's pick, some in the party found him too progressively left and friendly to labor. Truman was the more moderate choice. Convention imagines the wheeling and dealing which took place over two days in July of 1944. Directed by Shannon Fillion, the convention stage is used for speeches, but the guts of this play is the action which occurs everywhere, often simultaneously as written. There are delegates sitting among the audience chanting, We want Wallace, the same old team. Discussions, arguments, and gossip ensue. There are many sidebars happening in the aisles and up in the balcony. Pick one or two and eavesdrop. The energy and general mayhem is fun, especially for political junkies. There are a lot of delegates, and who's who becomes a little hard to follow. The main players in this drama, though, do emerge. Senator Samuel D. Jackson worked very hard to secure Truman's nomination. He later said that he wanted his tombstone inscribed with the words, Here lies the man who stopped Henry Wallace from becoming President of the United States. Jackson is portrayed by Kathleen Littlefield in a confidently assured performance. The casting in this show is gender and racially neutral. That seems to work fine overall. Campiness does creep in occasionally, and it seems intentional. The relatively young cast, however, struggles slightly to add gravitas to these delegates and convention organizers, so the humor is close to sitcom laughs. The best performances were strongly defined, appropriately serious in tone, while also being amusing. McLean Peterson's Mayor Kelly, Michael Pantosi's Philip Murray, and Sue Kim as Dorothy Vrendenberg, the secretary of the DNC, were especially memorable. Billed as an immersive political comedy, the production pivots between semi-serious reenactment and slyly subversive farce. The build-up in Act 1 to the final speech in support of Wallace is a peak. The show is never less than interesting and fascinating to follow. 
If you enjoy bribes, secret meetings, spying, extramarital affairs, conniving, and pettiness, there is much to gawk at during this political soap opera spoof. The beginning of Act 2 takes a turn to a lighter, jokier comedic style, which was less successful. There's the hot dog man, played by a very funny J.G. Grusard. Well, he's front and center, barking about his merchandise. Bess Truman is portrayed by Daniel John Serpati in drag. He's certainly funny, but a tad out of place. The women playing men don't camp up the drag nearly as big as he does, or perhaps he was just the boldest impersonation. There are some odd diversions along the way where these characters ponder what love is or toss up-to-date commentary into the mix. An example, stop it. You're like birds tweeting. Use your mind. I did get a kick out of many of the witty asides in the script when they were politically insightful and sharply delivered. A favorite? People love bullshit because people are simple. I sat in the Iowa section. Many audience members were fanning themselves like you might see in a crowded, overheated convention hall. It added to the realism, but the fans served another purpose. The inside of the Irondale Center is quite warm. I advise you to dress appropriately. The previous week, I saw Miss Black for president at Chicago Steppenwolf Theater about the 1992 New York Democratic Convention. Three days later, I attended this convention in New York City based on the 1944 Chicago Democratic Convention. Kismet? America's politics may appear more theatrical today than ever before. It's a welcome time to let inspiring artists highlight some of the highs and lows of the democratic process. We need to laugh at it sometimes to remain sane. Convention can be recommended for its immersive experience and Shannon Fillion's You Are There direction. Her massive cast has been orchestrated to make you feel like you are on the floor in the middle of the action. Although clearly not intended, it would be interesting to see this same piece staged more traditionally with a gang of grandstanding older white men. Danny Rocco's ambitious dramedy might then acquire a darker edge more pointedly skewering the political games played in the real world. Now I'd like to head off Broadway and talk to you about the highly anticipated new musical, The Secret Life of Bees, presented by the Atlantic Theatre Company. Religion is not my personal cup of tea, with or without honey, in any form. Watching the new musical, The Secret Life of Bees, I was surprised how powerfully the case was made for fervent belief. It's 1964 in the American South. Not being a white person is a troubled proposition. A century after the Emancipation Proclamation, people are still being murdered for the color of their skin. A movement expanding civil rights and eliminating discriminatory voting barriers, like literacy tests, is encouraging people to do their part. That environment, though, can be dangerously toxic. Imagine a country where governmental leaders use threats to suppress a group of people based on their racial profile. What about providing unequal and inadequate education to those same citizens? While parallels can easily be drawn to the harshly racist conservative movements in today's America, this fictional tale is a cousin to Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird and Catherine Stockett's The Help. Set in the same general period, all three are reminders of our very recent history. These trials and tribulations may not seem new, but the necessity of telling them has clearly not abated. Which brings me back to the religious angle that passionately separates this particular tale from those others. August lives in her grandfather's home with her sisters. They are in the business of making honey. The label on the jar is a picture of a black Madonna. They have a statue of her carved into wood which they use during their Sunday ceremonies. They are joyously devoted, yet desperately seeking healing and guidance to see them through difficult days. 
you can palpably feel their spiritual connection to generations of their ancestors, clinging to hope that salvation from oppression can and will arrive, the strength to live each and every day until that freedom shines. When these ladies come together to raise the roof, the score by Duncan Sheik and lyrics by Susan Burkham soar. The gospel-tinged Tekahola My Soul and the second-act showstopper hold this house together, dig into deep wells of emotion. Escaping their own personal troubles together, Lily and Rosaline will learn about love, life, compassion, and beekeeping from these women. The pedigree of those two composers, Duncan Sheik wrote Spring Awakening and the recent Alice by Heart, and Susan Burkhead was involved with Jelly's Last Jam and the musical working. Well, they did some nice material here. Unfortunately, the director, Sam Gold, has staged this musical like a reading with a few chairs and some props. The shiny wooden floor doesn't make any sense. I cannot think of a show which had lighting as harshly unflattering as this one. Jane Cox was the designer. I presume they were going for hot white sun in the south. Or perhaps, like the Oklahoma revival, they felt a need for super bright lighting to starkly illuminate the evil lurking in America. Is that a new theater trend? Instead, real moments of intense emotion were bizarrely devoid of any atmosphere whatsoever. In addition, cast members sitting around on stage watching scenes rarely added anything, but I guess they were needed to move the tables and chairs around. Amazingly, the cast is so strong, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Sweat, Lynn Nottage, his, her book is so well told. I was able to see past the visual disjointedness and be drawn into the emotional core of the material. Lachan's is astonishingly fine as August, the matriarch of this clan and soul of the story. She originated the roles of Once on the Island and The Color Purple on Broadway. With her gorgeous singing voice and fully developed characterization, all of her interactions and conversations felt organically believable. Lily is the young white girl who arrives and is taken under August's wing. Critical to the success of this show, Elizabeth Teeter nailed her complicated persona. She's the scout of this story, and hers is a much darker tale. The chemistry between her and Zachary, excellently played by Brett Gray, well, their chemistry from early friendship development to more significantly complex yearnings were beautifully handled. Manuel Feliciano plays T-Ray, Lily's abusive father. The performance is ideal in its ability to make this evil man multidimensional. Nathaniel Stampley's Neil woos and woos June. Their exchanges fuel the beating heart of hope and the dreams of perseverance. This entire cast is stellar, including Seishan Senblo in the juicy role of Rosaline, the character who seemingly grows the most as events unfold. Importantly, the music is extremely tuneful and nicely varied, from full-throttled gospel to quiet piano ballads to dramatically executed a cappella. Even the lighter, more musical comedy number, 55 Fairlane, was fun. If the lyrics occasionally seemed a tad generic in a self-help style, that feeling gets washed away by these exceptional performances. The Secret Life of Bees can be even better than this production. Given how much I enjoyed this musical, that is something to look forward to experiencing. I'd now like to take you to the East Village and the production 13 Fruitcakes. La Mama Experimental Theater Club has programmed a month-long series called the Stonewall 50 Celebration. Coinciding with this month's World Pride event, 13 Fruitcakes arrives with a few instructive sentences about New York in 1964 when the World's Fair was opening. The mayor orders the city's social pariahs off the streets, including the homeless, druggies, prostitutes, 
and homosexuals. Now that's a far cry from rainbow windows at Nordstrom's in Midtown today. Hallelujah! From this ominous opening, video projections wind backwards through time until 6th century BCE. The first of the vignettes is the story of Harmodius and Aristogiton. These two male lovers became known as the Tyrannicides, the preeminent symbol of democracy to ancient Athenians. Wouldn't it be fun if Tyrannicides was the word origin for tranny? Why were these men symbols of democracy? These men assassinated the authoritarian tyrant. With minimal storytelling, just using projected sentences, each scene incorporates a sung poem from a gay author set to an original score. For this first vignette, they use Walt Whitman's We Two Boys Clinging Together. The story of Dong Zhan in 1st century BCE follows. He was a Han Dynasty politician who quickly gained fame and power rising to be the most powerful official in Emperor Ai's administration. Both were married, but the two men had a sexual relationship. King Haigong of Korea's Silla Kingdom in the 8th century was murdered because he was effeminate. Historians describe him as a man by appearance, but a woman by nature. Byung-Ko An wrote and directed this production featuring the singing actor's repertory from South Korea. The beautiful and intricate song cycle was composed by Gahei Lee. The poem's words were always projected to allow their meaning to be clear whether or not sung in English. The style was frequently operatic and deeply emotional. The singing by the accomplished cast was excellent, as was the choreographed movement and silent acting. The show travels through history presenting artistic vignettes of major fruitcakes from history. Serious, somber, and occasionally playful and silly, the show incorporates music, dance, costumes, and drama with a major Korean drag artist as a mistress of ceremonies named Orlando. That artist's name, Moore Zimmon, well, she lip-syncs her songs, which are performed live by the gloriously big-voiced Jaeyong Jong, Along the way, the show covers Leonardo da Vinci, Tchaikovsky, and Eleanor Roosevelt, seen in many, many photos kissing women. One particular story is told with simplistic and heartbreaking poignancy. Alice B. Toklas lived with Gertrude Stein for 38 years. Ms. Stein was an avid art collector of works by her friends and had assembled a treasure trove of paintings. When she died, Miss Toklas had no legal standing as the women were not married. She died in pernery. The projection first showed an empty room, then chairs, then the women, and finally the whole room was filled in with paintings adorning the walls. A visual representation of an unfair society powerfully told through a single photograph. The sad, horrifically unjust tale of Alan Turing is another slice of fruitcake. It remains unfathomable that the man who was pivotal in decoding Nazi communications for the Allies and saving millions of lives would be sentenced to chemical castration for his homosexuality. Twenty years later, British sex farces with transvestites would be considered great fun in the West End. Using a little comedy to lighten up the proceedings was welcome in the section about Hans Christian Andersen. His love letters to Edvard Collin survive, but Mr. Collin married and was not gay. Scholars believe Andersen's The Little Mermaid, written at the same time as the communication between these two men, well, that Little Mermaid is reflective of his personal story of loss. Oscar Wilde's Wasted Days provides the poem to accompany this piece. A wedding ceremony is staged where the three groomsmen hilariously horse around with dildos. This is partially a drag show, after all. Much of the pacing in 13 Fruitcakes is very slow, with transitions that could be shortened. 
all of this blooming artistry is accompanied by Los Angeles Laptop Collective, who are dressed as nerdish angels and add layers of electronica noises throughout the show. It's jarring and different than anything on the stage. The effect seemed to be a different generation looking back in time from the perspective of today. That remains important and added an interesting element here. Dripping with style and grace, and of course a fabulous headdress, Moore Zimmon ends the show with a climactic peak. The whole cast is singing, and she saunters off stage, returning with chains carried overhead, only to throw them to the ground. The cast sings, quote, We must go through, yet we do not know who called, or what marks we shall leave upon the snow. There was only one weekend to see this experimental work of art in the midst of a historical pride month from an overseas company who brought their singular vision. Patient theatergoers will be rewarded with a celebration of some of the best fruitcakes ever tasted. We'll continue with more experimental work, this time at New York Theater Workshop's Next Door Space, the play Veil Widow Conspiracy. Presented by the National Asian American Theater Company, the parentheses that surround the title Veil Widow Conspiracy hint at this play's structure. The events to be unveiled center around a 1922 political murder mystery which occurred in Xinjiang, China. It is also about a 2010 movie filmed on location about that mystery. Finally, two young Asians in a dystopian Brooklyn in the year 2035 are discussing the film. The storylines are related and tucked inside each other, but really serve to comment on philosophies and moralities. In conversation, May and Zhao agree that it's not enough to be family anymore to get back into China. Connections are needed. Apparently, they reside in Brooklyn, and the situation in the year 2035 is not good. Zhao brings up the autonomous region of Xinjiang in a movie. The film cannot be seen in this presumably dystopian world, so he will be telling her the story. The metaphorically dense dialogue emerges early on when May says, We're basically swimming in doubt and breathing bad faith, who can bear deliberate fancy? Quickly, the time shifts to 1922, and we hear about a general's daughter whose face was disfigured in a shooting accident. Her husband was killed, and now she is going to remarry. A line of pompously important suitors attempt to woo her. She now wears a veil since her appearance is a highly guarded secret, likely a hideous one. The plot thickens as the suitors badmouth each other and she toys with them about finding and killing her husband's murderer. This extensive period soap opera portion is leaden, with little tension created to spark the attempt at aristocratic political intrigue. The 1922 heiress says to the commander, How can I, when the thought of your touch makes me gag? It's hard to get on board when the words sound silly and overwrought, but are not delivered that way. Shifting again, the play moves to the filming of the 2010 movie. More or less, there are three angles here. Recreation of movie scenes, interviews with the filmmakers, and heated discussions with Chinese censors who confiscate the half-finished project. A Western film attacking Chinese values will not be approved. The producer responds, Of course not. Tell me, is this like pubic hair? A conversation then ensues about the appropriateness of male and female nudity. Lines emerge about false truths which perk up the ears. The hypocrisy of a truth, despite it being universally known, that is exactly what brought down the Catholic Church and the Berlin Wall. But then the dialogue circles back to, and I'm going to quote here, pubic hair is another example 
absent across centuries to even now, depending on where, but still, often, sometimes, asserting the complete non-existence of a biological commonplace, unquote. There are some interesting ideas and thoughts buried deep within this play. The dialogue is often so intellectually unnatural that it was hard to stay focused to find those nuggets. The mishmash of interlocking stories continue from 1922 events to the movie shoot to the cast speaking directly to the audience. An actor confesses, I feel so naive in my privilege before quickly returning to the main drama. The story will finally conclude before returning to Brooklyn in 2035 so that me and Zhao can disagree about the film. She concludes, that is an insidious amount of total bullshit. A dangerous line to throw out there at the end of an overwritten play. Veil Widow Conspiracy needs copious editing and perhaps complete elimination of the Brooklyn bookends, which did not seem to add anything meaningful. Edward Chin Lin as the commander and film director, and James Soule as the prince and a delegate, created confident characterizations for both of their roles. Yushuan Chen's set design was ingeniously simple and very effective in clearly delineating the oft-changing locales. Gordon Dalquist's play, however, is long-winded, and the director, Anisha Kutarkar, was not able to help us understand why this particular story was being told. Our next play is from the Mint Theater. The Mountains Look Different. Michael MacLiamore is the Irish author of many plays and books. In 1928, he co-founded the Gate Theatre with his partner Hilton Edwards. He once gave an acting break to Orson Welles and later appeared as Iago in his film version of Othello. In a 1990 biography, this playwright's background was corrected to reveal that he was an Englishman who expertly crafted an Irish persona. Pretending to be someone else is at the center of The Mountains Look Different. Written in 1948, this revival at the Mint Theatre Company is the play's American premiere. Mr. MacLeamore performed as the son Tom in the original. The play was inspired by Eugene O'Neill's Anna Christie, in which a former prostitute falls in love but has difficulty turning her life around. The Mountains Look Different is an imagining of what might have happened after O'Neill's play ended. Midsummer Eve, June 23rd, is Bonfire Night, a pre-Christian celebration rebranded by the church as St. John's Eve. The program has an informative, dramaturgical note to explain the event and its traditions. Like many ancient holidays, this one is a petition for a bountiful harvest and good luck. Animal bones are thrown into a fire which gave its name from the term bone fires. Long-held superstitions in a rural landscape dotted with mountains are still followed by these farmers. Martin Grealish's acreage has no electricity, running water, or farm equipment. His son Tom returns from London with Barbara, who he intends to marry. She does not come with any dowry, but her uncle might be able to help. Barbara's got a complicated backstory and is desperate to become an ordinary wife and live happily on this farm. The playwright peels the opaque onion back in a series of scenes culminating in one involving multiple slugs of whiskey. Confidently paced by director Aidan Redman, the complexities and internal negotiations of remaking oneself are explored through rich dialogue and body language. Act one of this play gets the plot machinations underway. In act two, the family and some neighbors return from the bonfire for an all-night party. The easy camaraderie between these characters and the actors portraying them lends a nice touch of authenticity to this melodrama. The acting 
is solid across the board. As the straightforward, hard-widowed father, Con Horgan never shies away from letting everyone know who is in charge. Jesse Pennington's son, Tom, is aggressively presented as a tightly wound man. A romantic dreamer, he returns from London with the woman he loves. His discomforts are raw in this very interesting performance. As Barbara, Brenda Meany beautifully establishes the rough, experienced Barbara Stanwyck barely hidden underneath an ineffective and fragile Donna Reed shell. The three roles are critical to the success of this play. That these actors are all up to the challenge as equals makes this chestnut hum with life and wail with regret. Moodiness peppers this play. It's a good thing to be lonesome sometimes. The Lord strengthen her. I don't think she has long to live at all. The mountains do look different after a stay in the big city. People look different as they age, mature, and evolve. Or do they really morph? Is turning over a new leaf possible? As is typical for the Mint Theater, the creative elements excel. Vicki R. Davis's set design seems to merge realism with a fable-like atmosphere that feels appropriate for this morality play. The action begins outside, the front of the farmhouse, which will later crack open to reveal the inner home and, by extension, Barbara's past. When this play first opened, the Legion of Mary in heavily Catholic Ireland asserted there were no Irish prostitutes in London, also that no Irish Catholic would have anything to do with them. Despite the protests, the play was successful with Dublin audiences, likely because the theme of morality was candidly and thoughtfully addressed. The Mountains Look Different is recommended for fans of well-written period pieces given fine productions. For the second time this month, I'll go back to the Atlantic Theatre Company, this time to their smaller Stage 2 space, and the play Nomad Motel. Sitting in the lobby at intermission for Nomad Motel, a woman and her companion were waiting for the elevator. They were leaving, and maybe a dozen more followed. She turned to him and said, This isn't just bad. This is phenomenally bad. I was in agreement at that point. What did she miss? The second act was worse. Carla Ching's play is a cliché-ridden amalgam of awkwardly unnatural dialogue. Towards the end of the play, the obviously bored audience seemed to bond while laughing at the play and rolling their eyes. Ed Sylvanus Iskindler's direction dragged on and on. The last 20 minutes feel like hours. Yushuan Chen's set attempted to provide a generic space to represent the various locations. Like the play, the design grabbed an idea and abandoned it quickly. Manually operated curtains were used to change scenes in the beginning. Throughout much of the play afterward, cast members sort of clean up the scattered props when scenes are finished. When mom is leaving her daughter once again, she's taking crates to a car. In this staging, she's not really doing that. Instead, she's handing them through a door to someone off stage. Believable details are not a strong suit in the direction of this play. Two young people have no money and are squatting in a former store. They can make grilled cheese with an electric sandwich press. He prepares one and splits it with his ex-girlfriend. They engage in dialogue. Neither finishes their portion of food despite not having eaten all day. We watch him clean up and throw the remaining sandwiches in the trash. Is there any acting or direction going on? Why is there electricity in an abandoned store? Nothing which occurs on this stage is remotely worthy of your time. A mother and daughter are living with their unseen brothers in a motel, having lost their house. The mom is a train wreck. Daughter Alex is a good student with dreams of college. Struggling with poverty and having to work as a waitress to support deadbeat mom she inexplicably also has so much street smarts 
that she can fence anything for cash. The role is an impossible ask for any actress. Molly Griggs is not believable in this character and adds no layers to horrifically banal lines. A nerdy kid lives nearby in a big house, but there are also money problems. His largely absent father calls him from Hong Kong to maintain control. Dad disappears for long stretches. He has a dangerous job, likely criminal. Mason finds a bird and is nursing it to health. The relationship between the two is domineering Asian father and sensitive musician son. They clash. Dad alternates between mean alcoholic thug and wisecracking droll comedian. He wants to toughen his son up, quote, so he's not a runt sucking on my teat when he's 30. The son's view, I don't want to spend my life moving money around. When the fight finally happens, it is preposterous. If you left early, you would have missed that. There's another friend, Oscar, who has been tossed on the streets again from a never-ending series of foster homes. He is aggressively jealous of the largely studious relationship between Alex and Mason. At no point does any of this artificial tension make any sense. When staying with Oscar in the rundown storefront, Alex lights Luminaria to photograph her next new home with more aesthetically pleasing lighting. Points are made about bad parenting and children's survival in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. The theme, maybe some people were never designed to have children. However, the cliches in the script are too voluminous to make you care about themes. When the Guns N' Roses song Sweet Child of Mine started playing, I laughed. Was that the intention? If the moment was meant to be serious, it was an epic fail. Nomad Motel is probably closer to an independent film than a play. Long music interludes are added to the overly precious visual moments. When Alex and Mason are running from their past, with their parents still awkwardly on stage, you are watching an unfunded movie, not an intelligently staged play. When you see a lot of theater, there are some clunkers experienced along the way. This one from the Atlantic Theater Company, is beyond awful. The lady who exited early didn't need to see the second act to make the correct call. For our last play of the month, we'll go to Broadway and discuss Inc., a play from London imported by the Manhattan Theater Club. The story of Rupert Murdoch's rise is well known. No spoiler alert needed. His media empire, including Fox News, continues to inform a public and support the Republican and Trump party lines. Inc. takes us back to the early mogul days when an Australian businessman would take over the Sun, a London tabloid, and change news forever. James Graham's intricate and slyly witty play is a marvel of multi-character storytelling which swirls around the two main figures in this tale. Bertie Carvel won a Tony for his portrayal of Mr. Murdoch. His body language and vocal inflections suggest slithering snake meets predatory fox. The fascinating extra view is that there is a cloud of prudishness in his worldview. For a tabloid which introduced page three girls to print newspapers, that sidebar is interesting. Johnny Lee Miller is equally expert as Larry Lamb, the man handpicked to be the paper's editor. He scours Fleet Street and the local watering holes to drum up his team. They are all going to have fun and give the people what they want. In the process, he warns his boss, there's going to be a lot of blood. Murdoch replies, God, I hope so. Murdoch wants something loud to upend the British establishment. When I hear codes and traditions, I hear things which benefit those that have written them. Their motto? We punch up and not down. For people concerned about the state of media communications today, this play is timely, troubling, very funny, and hugely entertaining. 
directed as a swirling hurricane by Rupert Gould. The edges are sharp and the insights are meaty and delicious. What will these journalists do to make The Sun the number one paper in the United Kingdom? There is a scene where the unheard of idea to produce a television commercial is filmed. Andrew Durand plays the actor hired to communicate the message while cognizant of time and costs. The moment is nothing short of hysterical. The large cast is extremely accomplished in support of a story packed with details and amusing tidbits. There is real tragedy, of course, since tabloids are known for chewing people up and spitting them out. That section is riveting stuff. It is also revolting and speaks volumes about the evolution of the media since then. The set design, by Bunny Christie, is a marvelous pyramid of news desks cleverly designed to allow multiple levels of entrances and exits. Frenetic is the newsroom. Neil Austin won a Tony for the lighting design, and it is magically nostalgic yet dark and seedy at the same time. The original music by Adam Cork is the heartbeat propelling this tale. John Driscoll's projection design is integral in adding to the tension and allowing us a visual glimpse at some of this tabloid's history. Near the end of the play comes an unsurprising but still powerful reveal. Once you capture the minds of a large class of people, you can mold them to your way of thinking. That is what the Sun did during the rise of Margaret Thatcher. That is what Fox News and others have also done in America. When my parents were screaming at me one day about President Obama taking all our guns away, I knew the mission was complete. I had never heard them mention guns in my life. Now they were rabid venom spewers. For a superbly entertaining and creatively staged glimpse into how we got here, ink is required viewing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, we're going to cover the entire New York Music Festival. In addition, I'll cover two musicals from Encore's Off Center, Revivals of Promenade and Roadshow. And nearly a year after opening on Broadway, we're going to take a look at the musical Pretty Woman. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Thank you for listening and have a great day.